0: The story up till now, year four. Hello everyone, Mike the DM here. And can you believe it? We've been doing this for four years. And although this is one long storyline, and we always recommend that you go back and start at episode one and get every single joke and every single bad roll and every single critical hit and every single nuance that happened, we do understand that after 200 plus episodes that that might be a little bit daunting. So, once a year, we do this Story Up to Now episode so you can catch up. So sit back, relax, and in a couple hours you can get caught up and be ready to jump right into all the action. Oh, and if you'd like to just peruse the most recent year, jump ahead to an hour and 32. And from there, you can get all the updates for just this most recent year. Now on with the show. Our story opens with the party members dispersed to many locales in the south of Faroe. No one finds himself at odds with his master and is sent on walkabout to find himself. At the same time, in a different part of the monastery, Adry finds herself cornered by a mysterious elf that intones that he knows the secret that she carries and will reveal it if she too doesn't leave the monastery to try to find whatever magical force is ruining the land and sowing the seeds of chaos. The pair leave and wander down the mountain to Loford. Nearby, two other members of the party are finding that their fortunes are taking a turn for the worse. Arlen is told by his father that with the fogs coming out of the mountains and their family farm is suffering, he should leave and go to Loford to find work. Meanwhile, Gernval is being laid off of his job as a caravan guard, as commerce has fallen and the caravan is being eliminated. The caravan master recommends the nearby town of Loford as he has heard there are jobs there. On the other extreme, Alistair is riding high as he is graduating after years of training as a paladin in the Order of Dianect and being sent to Loford to help the friar there with his ministry. The group eventually finds itself in the town hall, each answering the notice asking for new members of the militia. At the hiring hall, they find that they are the last to be paired up, and so the party is formed, a motley crew of a dragonborn fighter, a half-elf paladin, and another who is a farmer with sorcerers' powers, and a tiefling and a half-elf monk. Their first patrol is almost their last, as they encounter first a giant spider and then a pack of ravenous wolves. The party is victorious, but barely, and several members are almost killed, As they bandage their wounds, the party notices that all of the animals they encountered look to be starving. Limping back into town, they're hailed as heroes for eliminating the wolves that had been preying on the local flocks. Now firm in the town's confidence, the city council asks the party to carry the embassy to the baron in Civitas Cataracta, asking for help. As they watch the party disappear down the road, the town is overrun by the walking dead. Things don't go much better for the party though, as they are set upon by giant frogs and lizards that they determine are also starving. Things are not well in the wild. The party does eventually arrive at Civitas Cataracta, and are witness to two events, one exhilarating, being overflown by a giant airship, and the other disturbing, being offered the drug Torque by a shady character working the entrance line at the gate. Entering the city, they find that there is a long queue to get into the keep to see the baron, and worse yet, his schedule is full for the day. The party will have to find accommodations for the night at a local inn. There, the party finds, over dinner, that they have never truly become acquainted after being thrown together. It is clear that there is much in everyone's past that they don't wish to discuss, but Garnval breaks the awkward silence, and the group opens up to one another, to a degree. Further discussion is cut short as a little girl comes screaming from the cellars, pursued by what appear to be zombies, and to make matters worse, the fighters' armor and weapons are in their room. The remaining three try to hold off the attackers while the fighters recover their gear and spirit the child to safety. The fighting men return, but not until things are going very poorly for the rest. They do end up triumphing over several waves of attackers, but as the fight progresses they realize that these are living beings if mindless, and not undead, and some are covered in fungal growths. As the dust settles, the city guard rushes in and accuses the party of murder, but the small girl validates their alibi that they were attacked, and the guards notice that the attackers show signs of being torque addicts. It is at that point a scream is heard from the street outside. The party and the guards rush out to find it filled with more of these torque zombies, with even more pouring out of the cellars to attack. A huge fight ensues that the party and the guards narrowly win, with the guards too injured to do more than secure the street, and the guard captain orders the party to investigate the cellars. They find the in-cellar and sub-cellar to be full of mindless brutes that they have to fight through, and at the bottom a den of iniquity filled with bodies encrusted in fungal growths. They also find evidence that the torque is being smuggled in from the neighboring barony of Exculbarium Colise. That evening, Gernval comes to Alistair to ask him about his divine healing powers. He takes a dragonborn to the cathedral, where he discovers his connection to Dianect and is multiclassed into cleric. The next morning, the party does have their audience, but with a baroness, as the couple was overwhelmed with a request for assistance and were splitting up the workload. She thanked them for their aid in the fights at the inn and the streets, and promised to send help to Loford right away. She then asked if the party couldn't aid the barony by being ambassadors and bringing a petition to Excalbarium Calise to stop the torque trade, as they had confirmed that is where the route was coming from. The party agreed, and on the morrow was outfitted with horses and sent on their way. There were adventures to be had before they got there, though. They were barely in the forest when they were jumped by a displacer beast which nearly feasted on Adri. But most importantly, they met Llewellyn. Obviously the leader of a ragtag gaggle of people scratching out an existence in the forest, he claimed to be the cousin to the baroness of Exculbarium Colise. Going to a makeshift hospital, he showed the party the depredations his cousin had inflicted in her reign of terror on her own people, and asked their help in deposing her so that he could make things right the party wasn't wholly convinced and asked to go to the city to take a look for themselves to which he agreed first though they agreed to help rid of the camp of a black dragon wormling that had taken up residence nearby and was causing havoc which they did getting their first magic items then later they helped to hunt a pair of titanic boars the next day they headed for Excaliburum Coliseum and found the stories to be true they retreated back to the forest before they could be picked up by the secret police and agreed to help with the coup. The next day they attacked with Llewellyn, entering the keep with him, and fighting their way to the baroness. It was only then that they found out that he was more like 12th in line to the throne, and could only get there by eliminating the rest of his family. The party was hustled out of the keep, with gifts of goodwill and promises to end the torque trade. There they stood in the pouring rain, with nowhere to go for shelter. Looking for a safe haven, Alistair suggests that they could make it to his old monastery by midnight if they rode steadily. They make their way through the rainstorm, and do pull up to the welcoming sight of the walls, and indeed are greeted by a cadre of the senior monks. Their relief is short-lived, though, as the monks drop their hoods and reveal grinning skulls. The fight is on, and the party, exhausted by the day's activities, moves from room to room, clearing the undead. No sign of the former occupants can be found. The party makes its way to the abbot's residence, only to find a grinning, flaming skull waiting for them. It levels Arlen with a fireball, but the rest of the party destroys it. Then they try to rest for the night and heal Arlen up, but are chased out of the building by the skull apparently reforming in the next room in the middle of the night. Fleeing into the rain is not much better, as skeletons and shadows wait there for them. After finishing off their foes, they make an uncomfortable night in the kitchen. The next morning, the party clears the rest of the monastery, ending up in the cathedral, where they find what's left of the former occupants, heaped in the center of the nave, being feasted on by the undead. An even stiffer fight breaks out, and the party chases one of the ghouls into the catacombs. Cornering it there, some of the mummified dead rise to attack, infecting Alistair and Guerneville with a wasting disease. Rushing back to Civitas Cataracta, hoping to make it there before the infected pair die, the party seeks healing from the clerics there and makes their report on their embassy. The powers that be are thrilled that the torque trade is over, but are aghast that they participated in a coup. The seneschal then asks the party if they couldn't locate a missing patrol that was clearing out torque dens. During the conversation, they also determine that there is a crazy old wizard in the tower in the middle of the city. Could he have a clue to what's going on? The party does locate the patrol, or what is left of them, in the sewers of the city, and are set upon by a shadow demon that destroyed the patrol. Reporting back and cleaning up, they then visit the wizard in the tower. Initially, he seems like the old coot that he is reported to be, but when they reveal their mission, his demeanor changes, and he introduces himself as Galchabar and he has been looking for a group to help him with the problems besetting the kingdom, which he believes derives from a single hand. He gifts them with a bowl of scrying, which they can use to spy upon their enemy if they can only find his name, and tells them that the only avenue he has not pursued is to consult the oracle of Ubrium Concordia, as it is death to go there if you are not of royal blood. The party takes the bowl and the clue and arranges passage on an airship with the disreputable captain. Their conversation is overheard, though, and they are chased through the streets of the city by the guard, barely making it back to the airship ahead of them. The guards do get a good look at the party, and so they won't be able to return to Civitas Cataracta any time soon. The flight to the Oracle takes them out across the trackless waste in the Mare Arnosum, the sea of sand that occupies the whole of the center of the kingdom, and is less than smooth as the propulsion system breaks and the party is required to pedal the airship all the way to the city, exhausting themselves. There is also an interesting event that happens in the night. On the first day, they contact Galchabar with the bowl that he gave them. That night, no one wakes to find Alistair using the bowl to gaze upon a dark-haired half-elven girl. When they land, they enter the oracle's chamber, and she does appear to them, giving them a mysterious poem which indicates the person who knows who their foe is is to be found in the old capital in the Delta to the southwest as well, as a number of other places that they can't immediately determine. They begin to debate its mysterious clues when they hear a noise from outside. Initially fearing discovery by the royal guards, what they find is far worse. The courtyard is crawling with all sorts of undead. Even worse, their airship, half of it ripped away, is drifting into the sky, apparently not on any sort of control. A single body falls from it, perhaps that of Dania, their ship captain. They have more pressing matters as the undead charge, and they have a huge fight to clear them out. Triumphing, they take stock of their situation. They are in the middle of the trackless desert, with no transportation limited food, and even more limited water. Their only hope is to follow the line of oases that dot the course of the ancient river to the delta. Their trek through the desert is fraught with peril as dust storms and mirages confuse them and dust methods and a giant antlion threaten to consume them. During the first combat, a beautiful young man appears to no one when he is put to sleep and bids him to return to the combat and awakes him. Who could that be? Eventually, the party loses its way, deceived by a mirage, but a friendly desert tortoise pulls them in the right direction and leads them to the next oasis. Setting out from this haven, the party spots a shack just off their path. Approaching, a man in a tiger mask runs inside and everyone notices that Arlen is pale and shaking. He reveals that when he was a child, he was magically spirited away and he woke up, to a man in a tiger mask pouring a glowing blue potion down his throat. He then woke up near home. Since that day, he has manifested his chaotic, sorcerous powers. The party enters the shack only to find that it is larger on the inside than the out, and are immediately set upon by the man's two stuffed tigers. Defeating them, they pursue him down into the basement laboratory, where he is apparently distilling the chaotic energies left over from the great mage wars, and using them to infuse children they confront him and an errant lightning bolt releases the chaos into the room with that the fight becomes bizarre with chaotic events happening at every turn eventually arlan fells the mage with magic missiles avenging him to some degree as the dust settles the party frees a young girl apparently another one of the experiments and trudges across the marais to return her to his her family near Dryadim Sivarum. Now, most of the way to the old capital, they continue down the remains of the old low road, but an old friend drops in for a visit. A young black dragon appears, apparently the one they defeated as a wormling, and he aims to get revenge on Adri for felling him. He nearly kills several of the party members before he is chased off, licking his wounds. A wonderful scene again. Hmm. After making repairs... They make the outskirts of the old capital, only to find themselves in a graveyard of the unquiet dead. They are set upon by skeletal knights, while bony arms reach out of the ground to hold them in place. Winning through that fight, they finally make it to Calium Sedes, and what a sight it is. Ruins extend for miles in every direction, and three great U-shaped canals circle around the city and connect it to the sea. And at the sea, stone quays that could have docked a hundred ships... In the middle, still visible, are the remains of the old palace. Approaching, the group skirts around a lair of lizard men they encounter, hoping to leave them for another time, but come to a halt when they find the last remaining bridge over the first canal is guarded by a village of what appear to be humans. Drawing the guards into a trap, they quickly find that they are Wan Tai, as they spit poison into their faces. Following the first fight, they move further into the village, where the snake-headed humans appear, and they learn the wisdom of not splitting the party. Dispatching that group, the party flees across a bridge as some mysterious ceremony begins to take place, and they make their way to the palace itself. Standing at the gates of the palace, the party finds some logs put in place in replacement of the old drawbridge, and footprints indicating that they aren't the only ones interested in the ancient ruin. Deciding to send Adrian first in full stealth mode to scout quickly turns into a disaster as one of the logs rolls, plunging her into the canal below, and a giant crocodile tries to make a meal out of her. The rest of the party leaps into action, and over the side, raining blows into the reptile until it succumbs and they can pull Adri from its maw. It is then that something happens that almost splits the party apart. Getting everyone into dry land, they behold Adrie, and it is as if her skin is peeling off, leaving black skin behind. It is only now that they realize that Adrie isn't what she claims to be. She is not a half-elf, but a half-drow. Alistair and Arlan, well steeped in the lore of the drow by their elvish parents, leap back in alarm and seem ready to attack her. No one in Gurnville leap to her defense. Thankfully, Cooler heads prevail, and Adri explains that she fled from the Underdark to get away from the horrible drow society that she never wanted to be a part of. Everyone takes a deep breath and agrees to move forward. Inside the palace, the party can only wonder at the opulence of the past. The complex itself is more vast and impressive than anything in the current age, even in its ruin. And ruined it is. Only a small portion still stands, the rest in so many tumbled blocks, They make their way into the old throne room and find everything stripped to bare stone. There seems to be nothing here and certainly no one that can tell them of the name of their foe. Even a call to Galchabar using the bowl is of no help. On the verge of defeat, the party explores a remaining palace and wonders to find a wing with its glass still intact and through those windows a parlor that seems to be untouched despite the passing of a millennia. Using Arlen's mage hand, they open the window, but as soon as they step foot inside, the the swords and rugs attack. The remaining party vaults through the window, except Adri, who fails roll after roll to climb in the wall. That and Alistair being unable to break free from the rug make the fight a chancy affair, but the party pulls through. They next explore the old armory, where they obtain magic items from the old kingdom, and then wondrously, a hall still populated by fluffy black cats, Finally, they make their way to the old library, and behold a sight that stops them. Waiting in the library, as if to receive them on a visit of state, is a woman who must be, though it seems impossible, the last queen of the old kingdom. She tells them of her history and rise to royalty, and how she was foretold as a child that she would betray her instructor and friend in one thousand years' time. So when the old kingdom fell, she sealed herself in a magic circle and has waited ever since for someone to come and ask her. With the last of her strength, she tells the party the name of the instructor was Aloal. They break her circle, and in a matter of moments, one thousand years catches up to her, and she moulders into a pile of dust, leaving only her book and her tiara. Then the ages catch up to the building, and the party must flee as it collapses around their ears. Looking for a way out of the city that doesn't require going by the Tai again, the party encounters a small fishing hut on the shore. The husband warns the strangers off. The woman of the house, though, makes a silent plea for help to Adrie. Sneaking back to the shack later, Adrie talks to her and she claims to be a silky, and that her husband has her skin and holds her against her will. The party talks to the husband, who claims she's crazy, and wrapped up in this silky fantasy, and even Gerneval's spellcasting can't get to the bottom of things. The group puts the site under surveillance and sees the husband go off into the woods that night. Backtracking the next day, they find a chest stored in a nearby stream, and inside, a silky skin. They return to the wife and she throws it on as she runs to the sea, narrowly missing the husband racing home to stop things. It is only then that they hear the soft noise and see a pair of children in the door to the cabin. Leaving with bad taste in their mouth, the party heads north towards the Vale of Elves, the next clue on their list. But halfway there, they hear a scream in the woods. Chasing it down, they find a young human woman stuck in the quicksand menaced by harpies. Beating off the attackers and pulling her free, they find that they have added Orlana to their party. But what is she doing out in the wilderness on the other side of the mare from her home? The answer comes as she manifests sorcerous powers, and they realize that she is yet another victim of the Mad Mage of the Mare, and determined to send her home, somehow, but first off to the elves. Meanwhile, some curious eyes are watching the party's passing. Feline eyes. The Tabaxi live their secluded existence south of the Vale of Elves, in the library, in the largest tree in the forest and they note the passing of a strange ensemble heading north. But their curiosity is quickly replaced by survival, as their precious library tree is invaded by undead, apparently bent on destroying the library and all of its irreplaceable information. They fend the walking dead off, but realize that the outside world is taking note of them. As the Tabaxi fight for their library, the party contacts the elves, and finds that their arrival has been heralded by Galchabar. They are given refreshments while they describe their quest to their hosts. The elves offer little concrete advice, though. They know nothing of a Lowell, but promise to send word to Fairy as the Court of Seasons is following their work. They can't even offer advice on a Lowell's tower, which is noted on the ancient map the party found in the Queen's book. The elves tell them that there is only a druid circle where the tower is indicated. Then Gernval gets a headache and passes out. And when he revived, he attacks a ranger and runs off into the woods. When he is found unconscious, he knows nothing of what he did. With no other clues and no word yet from Ferry, the party investigates the druid circle where the map says Hello All's tower stood. After some investigation, they find the cairn of rocks is actually the top of a long ago rotted set of stairs. Dropping down inside, they find that they are in a chamber of horrors. Set up as a student's dorm in a classroom, It is now a tomb." The students' skeletal remains are lashed to the remains of their furniture, apparently all having been killed at once. The party does acquire some magic items from them, though. Descending deeper into the school of hard knocks, the party realizes that this IS a Lowell's tower, only now sunk into the ground by immense magics. On the next level, they find the instructors' quarters, although they do not seem to have fared any better than the students'. Still, they find a journal with some pages still legible. They chronicle a Lowell's descent into evil and dabbling with necromancy after being stranded in far when the gates to Ferry closed. Then they find a Lowell's quarters, and the results are disturbing. They find a book about necromancy that makes their skin crawl just to touch it. And they realize that his bedposts are actually polymorphed victims forced to live all eternity as tortured furniture. They put them out of their misery. On the next level, they find a great lab with a pool of blood still liquid after a thousand years and gargoyles as guardians which attack. Winning that battle, they make it to the ground floor where the guards lived. They seem to have suffered the worst fate of all. The leaders have been killed like the students and the staff, one of which is a revenant and tries to strangle Arlen. But the guards themselves seem to have been herded into a room and killed with a fiery explosion. The party then descends into the basement, and finds itself in a room where each corner is a statue of a weeping angel and which has three exits. After two characters enter a corridor, the remainder find that they cannot and have to take the other two corridors. These corridors end in similar rooms, minus the statues, where skeletons erupt from the ground to attack, but not before the players find that the characters have all swapped rooms. This is high anxiety for the lone character in the third room. As the dust settles some of the party can hear deathly laughter from far away. This happens three times with the laughter becoming more and more apparent. On the last go-around, there is a snapping of fingers, and the maze disappears and the party finds itself in an arena, surrounded by tears and tears of undead, and sitting at the head of the arena in a carven chair must be a low-all. He sends wave after wave of undead at the party, interspersed with refreshments, there is also the largest number of nat ones rolled in an episode maybe ever. Somehow the party survives and advances on a low all to at least go out fighting. A all tells them that he will see them in hell first and snaps his fingers and shatters reality. The party wakes to find themselves on an endless featureless plain of gray under a black sky with only the tiniest hint of purple at the horizon to delineate it. This seems to be some kind of otherwhere. Time doesn't seem to exist. No matter how far the party walks or runs, the view is the same. Finally, in desperation, one of them kills himself, and his form just melts into the sand. Adri then sets about killing everyone else, and Alistair strikes her down, and then finally, alone, by himself, walking forever, takes his own life. The party is awakened by the elven ranger Darogai. A search party was dispatched after the party didn't return for three days. The elves found them in an underground cavern below the buried tower with no evidence of a maze, arena, or an extra-dimensional plane. They hurry the party back to the elvish settlement as the Court of Seasons is due to arrive the next day. It is also fortuitous that the Moon Festival is happening that very night. Everyone cleans up, but Arlen is summoned to Arlana's room. While the party was gone, apparently her magical powers almost blew up the room. She is panicked as she has no idea how to control her new magics. Everyone attends a grand feast where Grunfowl is given a curried squirrel as the elves fear that their vegetarian cuisine is what caused him to go berserk. They also meet a bard named Nissian, who appeared to play at the festival. That night, everyone is visited by someone close to them, either to their pleasure or to their ill. Arlen is visited by Galchabar, who inquires as to what he saw in the bowl, scrying when they used it with Elawal's name. Hint, hint, they never used it. Arlen is greatly chagrined. Alistair is visited by his brother, who entreats him to return home, and just before he fades, tells Alistair that the city is sick, and he is as well. Adri is visited by her sister, who describes all the vile things going on in the Underdark and how she pities her for missing all the torturous fun... No one is visited by his mother, and she reveals to him that she knew his father was something evil, but slept with him for money since she was starving. When the resulting child was born devilish, she ran away from what she had done. Finally, Gernval is visited by the human who found him left for dead and nursed him back to health. Gernval confesses to him that he is lost and doesn't even know who he is anymore and pleads for help. The next day, the Court of Seasons, the Elvish royalty, crosses the gateway into far. for the first time in generations. They hold court in the Elvish settlement and interview the characters. Their historian brings records about a Lowall and indicates that his was a school of illusion. I think the characters had already figured that one out. There is another huge feast, and the court promises to send any information that bears on the subject the next day, the autumn king and queen remain behind to give the party magical gifts before they, too, return to fairy. Then the party finally uses the bowl to scry on a low wall. They receive a series of images, an oasis covered with a cloud, a blue village covered in ice, an island on the ocean with a spire, a dark cavern with a dark city, a cave in the mountains with a trickle of smoke coming out, a castle resting on a cloud, and a scarred, fiery landscape where you can almost hear the shrieks of the damned. The party leaves the elves and heads to the docks at Kaleskwe, land of the halflings, to charter a sand ship to take them to the oasis in the mare. As they go, they cross an invisible line. On the elvish side, everything is normal, but on the other, decay and fungus have begun to creep in everywhere. The party treks to the dockside, and in the hiring hall, the half-elf in front of them turns around and takes one look at Alistair and says, Cotter, where have you been? Alistair says that he must be mistaken, which the half-elf accepts, but the party doesn't buy even for a minute. Then another voice pipes up behind them and says, There you are! Do you know how long I've been looking for you? And the party spins round to find Dania, the ship captain, they thought they had lost at Ubrium Concordia. She offers to take them to the Mare. The party disembarks at the clouded oasis and is immediately jumped by a bulette, which they finish off quickly. Then they see an amazing sight. A fountain bubbles by the oasis feeding its water into the lake. Gurnville sends his owl Gaius after the fish in the fountain, but he flies right through it and disappears. The party realizes that this is another illusion, and the fountain covers the stairs leading to the buried town below. In the main hall, they find four corridors leading out and a set of stairs going down, and in the corner a tunnel that apparently has been chiseled into the room from the Underdark, judging by the drawish letters left above it. After making its way out of the buried hall, they find that this dungeon is set with all sorts of perilous traps. The stairs leading down from the hall into the native rock are trapped with blades, thunder glyphs, and ball bearings, and finally a slide. Adri uses her new power to meld with the shadows to jump ahead of the party and trip the traps before they get there. Then they find a room with a tightrope over a spiked pit. But when no one tries to walk the tightrope, it starts to dissolve, and he realizes that the pits aren't empty, but filled with gelatinous cubes which try to envelop him and the party. Then they encounter a room with a floor of fire, above which floating disks rotate around the room from door to door. When the party attempts to cross, skeletons jump out of the galleries and the ceiling to attack. The party beats both of these traps, but finds themselves at a dead-end wall in which there is a haiku poem. There are divots in several of the letters, and the party realizes that they have to go back to the hall in the beginning and check out the corridors, but not the one to the Underdark, to see what they missed. They find a glowing gem on a pedestal in each room and two more of the Weeping Angel statues flanking the door. This time, however, the statues crumble when the gems are touched, revealing two Bodaks. These end up being quite tough, and Alistair is only saved from death by Arlen bending luck on his saving throw. With the gems recovered, they are fit into the wall, which opens to reveal a corridor with a polished obsidian wall on one side. Meanwhile, the Tabaxi are back in action. Galchabar is asked for their help in investigating the shack in the mare where the party found the mad mage. They are carried there on a dragon back, after which Galchabar flies in from the other direction on a flying carpet. They investigate the laboratory and open the magic circle which leads to a dimension of chaos. Galchabar is pulled in and the felines go after him. They are quickly set upon by orbs of chaos which lash them with beams of various powers. They defeat the orbs, but not before their cleric is killed in the process. Galchabar comes shooting out of the center of them and tells them to flee. They grab their fallen comrade and beat a hasty retreat, all piling on the carpet, which barely whisks them to safety before that whole part of the mare goes up in a titanic explosion. They limp back to town to mourn their fallen friend. Back in the trap dungeon, the party finds when they advance down the corridor that their reflections, which all have goatees, even Adrian Gaius, indicating that they are evil, step out of the wall and attack. The evil selves are then pitched against their good selves. The players have a good time with this, beating on themselves with their evil doppelgangers. Eventually, though, the good side prevails. Then at the end of the hall, they encounter stairs going up. They pass a pit that they have to swing across that not everyone negotiates well. Spikes that slide out of the wall, a room full of spiders, and finally a room whose floor is covered with a checkerboard of squares, half with runes. At the end of the room, under a glass dome, is what has to be a phylactery. The party attempts to retrieve it, but finds that the rune squares explode, and then skeletons appear from the floor. When those challenges are met, they find that the key that they found in a Lowall's tower fits the glass dome, and they take the phylactery. That causes a giant stone ball to roll out of the ceiling, and it's a race to make it past the traps back to the flaming disc room. One by one, the players fall to be lost to the ball until the last two make it to the disc room. Then the ball shoots into the room and disappears. It was an illusion, and the characters that fell eventually show up. The party begins to leave, but find Dania, Nissian and Orlana fleeing down the hall to join them as there is a dragon sitting on their airship. Meanwhile, two other groups are busy as well. On one side of the mare, the Tabaxi mourn the loss of their friend Moon at the Mad Mage's shack. They decide to resurrect him, but that will require rare unguents they don't have. They journey from their home to Koleskwe and back to get them, barely getting back in time. When they do get back and get their friend to the druid circle in the mountains they find it occupied by banshees they clear them out and the archdruid resurrects moons as a dwarf on the other side of the a group of dragonborn take off on a trail to gain trophies all is not well in the mountains the game is running thin and so there are few trophies to be had to make things worse The ruling Snow Owl clan has no males to fight for it and it is out of favor, so that clan member is taking abuse from the others. They do finally find a pair of polar bears and slay them, but then a titanic white dragon shows up and claims their kills. They do at least grab one of the heads as they flee, so they have their trophy. Back in the Mare, the party goes back topside. Obviously they are worried that the black dragon has tracked them down here and is waiting, but they find instead that it is a brass dragon, Loquax, which Galchabar warned them was lonely and would talk their ears off. Nisian says the last time he saw her, she held him captive for a month until he told her all the news he knew. Loquax replies that he seemed to enjoy it at the time. She takes the party back to her lair, making her some souffle, glazed carrots, and creme brulee. It turns out Orlana knows how to make them. Then the party tries to entertain Loquax with their skills. It is a miserable failure. In the late night, Gernval is secretly visited by Loquax, and Arlen sees her leaving his room in the gray of dawn. The next day, they try to convince Loquax to release them, and it is as rousing a success as last night was a failure. She sends them on their way. The party returns to the airship and ponders what to do next. They have the lich's phylactery, but how to destroy it? This kicks off six weeks of episodes without a single fight, only skills challenges, and role play. The party does a skills check to see what solution comes to them, and they remember the salmon of knowledge. This mythical fish, if caught, provides insight when eaten. Dania shuttles them down to the delta to try the first salmon run of the year, and they succeed. During dinner... Alistair remembers that there is a dagger in the tombs of the Cathedral of Dianect that is supposed to be able to pierce even the hardest armor. They make a try at getting that. They board the Mele and Aquila and head off to Port of Magnum, where Alistair has hinted he comes from. On the way, they see a number of disturbing sights, abandoned rotting farms and pastures, and an army marching out of Ferrum the Dwarves' Barony, headed towards Port of Magnum. Then Porta Magnum itself seems to be in trouble with a tense city outside its gates and small smoky fires burning all over the streets. The party ties up in Porta Magnum and Dania announces that she will try to get a new client that isn't so likely to get her killed, like someone transporting dangerous beasts or high explosives, and everyone heads into town. They make a beeline for the cathedral and are quickly received by the bishop. A couple of the players do notice a page quietly slipping out of the cathedral. The bishop agrees to retrieve the dagger, but it will take several days to do so respectfully. As the party exits the cathedral, a begown girl wraps herself around Alistair, shouting, Cotter! She identifies herself as Morna, and informs everyone that Alistair is really Cotter, son of House Fraser. She takes them back to the family compound, and what a residence it is. It turns out that Cotter's family is fabulously wealthy the manor house has several wings and many stories and has numerous outbuildings the family immediately calls for a dress ball to celebrate cotter's return when cotter has an audience with his mother and sisters he finds his father and brother have perished while he was away making him head of the house his sister beseeches him to stay as the ladies were trained to be ladies of society and not businessmen and the family finances are been floundering. At the ball, the party is introduced to Sinia, Cotter's girlfriend, who has refused all suitors despite Cotter being gone for years. The two tarry behind after all the guests go to bed and steal off to the office to go over the family books, as Cynthia has revealed to Cotter that she has been running her family business in her brother's name for years since her father died. She pores over them, and sometime in the wee hours of the night, has to agree with his sister's, They have no idea what they're doing and will run the family business into the ground. Cotter can't stay in Porta Magnum with the world in peril and asks Sinia if she can run things for him. She replies she can't as she is not a member of the family but she could if she was his wife. Cotter proposes. The next day, with time to kill until the dagger is exhumed, the party heads down into the plague tents to see if they can help. Conditions are horrific. There are just lines and lines of beds filled with patients. Some moan in agony, some flail at unseen attackers, and some rave like lunatics. The worst affected just lie there. And their limbs have blackened and shriveled. One patient falls out of his bed, his blackened arms just snap off. The overworked staff does what it can, but all the clerical monasteries were raided, and clerics are in short supply. Cotter and Gernval heal as many as they can, but more pour into the tents to take their place. Worse yet, no one knows what's causing it. The food has been tested, the water has been tested, precautions have been made against vermin. Nothing seems to work. Gernval is convinced that some person is doing this, so they repair to a dive bar in the lowest circle of the town and try to buy information, but that leads them nowhere. The only clue they suss out is that it seems to be affecting the poor more than the rich, and the poor have a diet mostly of the cheaper rye cereal. Over dinner, when they quiz Cotter's family as to the habits of his deceased brother, his mother replies that he did have a taste for rye bread. With this valuable theory, the party goes to a granary, and after some searching, they find small fungal bodies amongst the rye grains that must be causing the plague. They gather some clerics and paladins, and purify the grain, and set up to do the same for each of the warehouses, mills, and bakeries. But when they find that the grain fields are infected, they realize they need far more help. The party spends the day visiting all of the churches in town, and one by one convinces each one to send its clerics to the field to help, and the whole of Port of Magnum is cleansed. The next day, the party returns to the cathedral to use the dagger to destroy the phylactery. Placing it upon the altar just has the box slide off onto the floor. Apparently something so holy cannot support something so evil. They pierce the box with a dagger, and nothing happens. The glowing gem on the top dies and falls off, but that's it. Unlikely if this were truly the storage vessel of a lich's soul. The party realizes that it has been fooled. Upon contacting Galchabar, he is relieved, With the multiple locations that Alol seems to be in the poem and the bowl, it seems like he may have split his soul into seven pieces which would require immense power, but let's face it, that's like something out of some kind of storybook. They all agree that they will have to take the poem one step at a time and try to track down all of the phylacteries to find the real one. It is then that Gurnval goes crazy again, chasing Arlen all over the Fraser house trying to get the bowl. Only Olana's wild magic summoning a unicorn to stand on him quiets him. Arlen does give the bowl to Gernval and he tells Galchabar that he's been having blackouts and doesn't even know who he is. Galchabar urges him to tell the party about it and he trusts they will help him. He does so. And despite Cotter's wedding coming up in ten days' time, they take off to get Guernville back to his people and hopefully to be healed. The party charters a fast airship to get them to Excalbarium Colise overnight, and owing to what they did the last time they were there, sneaks through the town as fast as possible and takes off up the hill. That's when the arrows start flying. The party is ambushed by bandits, which they defeat, and when they despoil the leader, he is holding the other half of the medallion that Guernville holds. This leads the party to believe that these are the bandits that left him for dead all those months ago. The next day, they hike further into the mountains, this time to be ambushed by Dragonborn. This goes completely differently. The Dragonborn charge up to Gurnvell, and then throw themselves at his feet, asking for him not to kill them and calling him war leader. He asks them to take him home. The Dragonborn take the party to a high alpine valley where the tribes make their home in the summer. There he meets the matriarch in charge of the council, and she tells him that she is his sister, and his name is actually Creval, war leader of the Snow Owl clan. The party realizes that the situation is fraught with peril, supplies are dwindling in the mountains, and the tribes are prepared to raid the valley for food. Only the firm hand of the head matriarch has kept them in check. But the bear clan has challenged for the right to lead the council, and with no one to fight for the snow owls, they look to take over. Kraval steps up, but he has no trophies to show his prowess. The party takes off up the mountain looking for trouble and finds the white dragon. It proposes to eat a party member, but takes a magic ring instead. They next confront a yeti and down it after a challenging fight. They have barely rigged it for travel when a frost giant shows up to claim their kill. Clever use of a darkness spell makes him easy picking, and the party takes his head home as a trophy as well. This confirms Krival's right to fight for the right of dominance, and he meets the Bear Clan challenger the next day in ritual combat. They wear only paint, leather kilts, and use clubs lined with obsidian shards as weapons. Initially, the fight goes very poorly for Kriv. The challenger is a barbarian, and he flies into a rage... With his damage attenuation, Kriv's blows barely affect him, and with his extra attack, he starts wailing on Krival. Only Krival's healing spells, backed up by Cotters, keep him in the fight. Then, when the Bear Clan Challenger is sure he has him on the ropes, he breaks the One Rule of the Ring and breathes on Kriv. This gross violation of the Code of Honor breaks whatever inhibition Kriv has, and all of a sudden, he is himself. He is Krival, war leader of the snow owls and a barbarian, not a fighter. He flies into a rage himself and now he's on even footing with the challenger. When the challenger becomes exhausted, Kriv gains the upper hand and now he is shrugging off the other's blows and dealing great damage himself. Soon he kills the challenger for breaking the one rule of the ring. As the dust settles on the ring and the party is infused with victory, Krival gets a surprise. The victorious war leader, must now marry the matriarch of his clan, which is, of course, his sister. The party has a real icky moment with this, but then she explains that it's only a formality, it's not as if the two of them even have to live together, and they can take as many consorts as they would like. In fact, one has already volunteered, and a brass dragonborn female appears telling Kriv that she has brought eggs for soufflé, glazed carrots, and creme brulee. It's loquax in dragonborn form again. In the quiet after the wedding, Kreval discusses the party's quest with his sister and how they are looking for a village covered in ice. She recalls hunters finding artifacts in a mountain stream and summons the hunter. The party takes off with him and finds the stream with the artifacts from the old kingdom in it. Before they can track upstream, they are set upon by winter wolves, but then Craval realizes that he no longer has a connection to Dianect now that he is back into himself and has no healing powers and things get dire, and he nearly dies in the crossfire. But somehow the party prevails. Orlan is particularly happy that she has kept her magic from going out of control the whole time. Then she suddenly teleports, lights in the ground on fire, and fires off magic missiles. Arlen tries to reassure her that things will get better, and tries giving her his quarterstaff as a focus to keep the energies in check. Tracking upstream and running out of time before they have to get Cotter back to the church for his wedding, the party comes against an impediment. The canyon that they've been in ends in a frozen waterfall. Climbing it proves treacherous, and there are many slips. But halfway up, Craval realizes that there are buildings behind the ice. The village that they are looking for is covered in the ice waterfall. The party chips its way through the ice to the hollow inside and sure enough there is another phylactery here the party tries to claim the phylactery but two young remoras erupt from the snow orlana is immediately knocked unconscious and the fight proves difficult as the monster's heated body does damage when struck so everyone but the casters take damage when they strike the monsters worse yet the eruptions of battle cause the ice ceiling to collapse and chunks of ice rain down on everyone the party finishes off the monsters grabs the phylactery, and squeezes out of the ice cave just as it collapses around them, barely making it to safety. And that's where things stood at the end of year one, leaving many things up in the air for the beginning of year two. The party had just claimed the second phylactery from the frozen city in the waterfall. Although triumphant, there was a dark cloud still hanging over the party. Guernval, now known as Kraval, had been healed and had his memory restored and become war leader for his people. However, in that restoration, he had lost his connection with Dianek, and the lack of healing power had nearly finished the party in the fight in the frozen city. Now returned to the Dragonborn camp, he is confronted by his clan shaman, who instructs him to hold a vigil to find his spirit animal. He finds much more. In the wee hours of the night, he is visited not only by the animal, but by the god Nuwada, whom he worshipped as a warrior in the past. As he reconnects with his faith, a snow owl, the icon of his clan, flies out of the rising sun to him. He returns to the party, a changed man. The party's quest in the mountains finished, they must now hurry home to Port of Magnum as Cotter's bride is waiting for his return. First, though, Craval must marry the reverend mother of his clan, who, unfortunately, is his sister. In a barbarian ceremony they are joined before all the clan and their guests. Then it is a mad dash down the hill to Excalbarium Colise to catch the fast airship back to Port of Magnum and Cotter's wedding. This is a completely different affair than the wedding in the mountains, taking all day and full of much pomp and circumstance. At the climax of the ceremony, Cotter is installed as head of his family and the Lord of the Swans. Then the Baron of Porta Magnum himself knights him with a caveat that they must appear before him for a mission the next day. In the meanwhile, the Tabaxi are keeping busy. Galchabar has tasked them with finding an old spellbook that he has a line on. They think that it might be in the Summer Palace in the mountains and they head off in that direction. As they cross the delta, though, they are jumped by Wan Tai, and the fight is a very near affair. Escaping by the skin of their teeth, they make it to the Summer Palace. They find it buried in a fall of ice and realize it's the same city the main party just escaped from with the phylactery. They find the magic javelin the party left behind, but no spellbook, but perhaps hints to where it might be found. Back in Portamagnum, the party learns that the Baron would like them to act as ambassadors to the neighboring barony of Faramond's, Realm of the Dwarves. Resources are wearing thin, and the two baronies are at the Brick of War. Meanwhile, Craval and Cotter work out a deal with Sinia to trade food to the Dragonborn for furs to keep them fed in, in place in the mountains. Then the party heads to the fabled library of Porta Magnum, and then to the royal astrologer to try to get any answer or insight into the current peril. Both the librarian and the astrologer are. interesting. Rejoining the tabaxi, they journey to the middle of the mare as clues they find lead them there to the buried city of Exodus. They burrow into the sands of the mare only to find a pair of umber hulks that would like to make a meal of them. Defeating them, they discover a cache of documents that, while a great find for the Great Tabaxi Library, shed no light on the current quest. They must look elsewhere to complete the quest, and then decide that Ferry is the right place to check. They arrange with the elves to open the gate to Ferry, but find a giant corpse flower waiting on the other side. This nearly finishes them off, the cats only being saved by the timely arrival of the elven patrol sent to escort them. The main party hits the road in their new capacity as ambassadors to stem the tide of war before it begins. They find out that they are too late, though, as they come across the corpse-strewn landscape of a recent battlefield. Then they notice that there is a familiar red-robed figure, raising the dead as an unliving army. They pursue the party into the spine of rock, the only defensible space around. There, the party throws everything they have at them, only to have the undead horde press forward, undaunted. Then, with all looking bleak, Orlana... Arlen's apprentice, throws herself down the hill into a mass of undead and detonates, destroying the undead and nearly the party and leaving only a crater to signal her passing. Grieving her loss, the party presses forward, making contact with the dwarves and talking their way past the barricades. Not trusting the party, though, they escort them back to the Iron Mountain for an audience with the Baron. There they find their information to be true. He is refusing to treat with any half-health, but Craval and one he will talk to. They make little progress in their talks, but the Baron commissions a feast all the same. Dwarven food, though, is fiery, and surviving the food is their first challenge. At the feast, the serving automatons, created by the gnomes, catch the party's attention. The Baron's cousin Nola offers to guide the party on a tour of the gnomish workshops the next day. The first stop is a garage of cars propelled by dire hamsters. They can't help but engage in a game of Mario Kart, They then commission the creation of a battle trainer for Noan, and then end up at the fabled dwarven Pepperfields. It is here that Nola reveals that she offered to act as guide to give the party a request. She wants them to kill her cousin, the Baron. Initially off-put by the thought of helping another cousin depose a Baron after being duped by Llewellyn at Excalbarium Colise in similar circumstances, the party is slowly brought around by her explanation that the person sitting on the throne is in fact not her cousin. He seems only peripherally aware of things that he should have intimate knowledge and opponents to his rule have a habit of suddenly switching to his point of view for no apparent reason. They agree to confront him and depose him only if necessary. When they do corner the Baron in his throne room late at night, they find him waiting for the attack. Apparently they weren't as clever as they thought. The guards rush to attack and the fight is on. It is at this point a strange thing happens. The Baron charms Arlen and when he approaches kisses him turning into a succubus instead the kiss of death nearly finishes Arlan, who is able to retreat only with the help of the party the guards cease their fight and the succubus turns ethereal and escapes laughing through the walls at this point we return to the mountains and the dragonborn they have set up trap lines to gather the piles of skins they will have to trade for food so as not to starve in the coming winter unfortunately someone or something has been destroying their traps They attempt to track the interloper and finally, after a day of hard work, find a bear stuck in their last trap surrounded by vultures, waiting for it to die. It turns out that it is they who are the ones that are trapped, as animals turn into druids who assault and nearly kill them. They fend off this attack, but are left with the mystery of why the druids would target them. Back in Faramons, the party has to convince the mob of dwarves that what they did was a good thing, and for them not to tear them limb from limb... Getting a short reprieve, they must discover what happened to the real baron to assuage the mob. They search the baronial quarters only to find his remains and all the dwarven crown jewels stashed in a bag of holding. This throws the dwarves into a state of excited chaos. They select their leaders by a juried crafting competition. And now, all of the great master crafters will go head to head to see who will be the next baron. Nola enlists the aid of the party to help her and off they go. The first stop is the depths of the mine where they will gather the ore they will need for the project she has in mind. Unfortunately, the deepest parts of the mine are the haunts of trolls who would rather see the party becoming lunch. They nearly succeed as they gravely injure several party members before they can be overcome. There is little time to lick their wounds, though, as time is of the essence and the party struggles to the crafting chamber to assist Nola with her masterpiece. They pump the bellows, grind the stones, hammer and polish the metal, and in the end... She is declared the new baron on the strength of her masterwork. Things are finally looking up for a change when all the arcane crystals of the dwarves used to power their constructs disappear in one night. They begin the investigation into the disappearance when they find that Nola has gone missing as well. This threatens to throw the whole barony into chaos and undo all the good work the party has done. Frantically, trying to tie down all the pieces together, they find that the last person Nola visited was the High Tinker, the head of the gnomes. They investigate his home and find a secret entrance to a lair deep in the earth. This chamber is otherworldly, covered in strange rock shapes, and in the center, the Tinker, surrounded by writhing masses of flesh and mouths, apparently ready to sacrifice Nola in a strange altar. Despite the creatures being more buzzsaw than flesh, they destroy the aberrant creatures and chase the High Tinker off. They must now pursue him to the surface and stop whatever diabolical plan he has. Meanwhile, the Tabaxi have limped into the elven home of fairy to research their quest. They find to their dismay that the elves have a small library in front of each and every home they inhabit, not one big one like the tabaxi. They will have to split up and research them all, and they spend the entire day led by elven children visiting every promising library looking for leads. This leads them to the fabled city of Ubrum, Concordia. What will they find there? Back in Farrah the party reaches the surface only to find the true power of the High Tinker. He has abandoned technology for the power of the Old Gods and rides on a house-sized mass of writhing flesh and teeth. The party valiantly attempts to damage the beast, but it's too great. It destroys whole guard formations and sends them reeling in confusion. It is at this point that Oscar reappears with his battle wagons. The party jumps in and attacks with them, but the punny weapons he has equipped these experimental units with are hardly better than what the party could do themselves. Oscar commands the party to hit the red buttons that they had previously been forbidden to touch, and the wagons join together to form a great battle robot with a light sword. Unfortunately, the party finds that they somehow have put exactly the wrong personnel in each vehicle. It lurches awkwardly about the field, hardly damaging the Tinker's aberration, while all the time taking damage from it. Finally, they get the hang of it and turn the tide and then Arlen leans out of his unit and sends a final fireball into the high tanker's command compartment, destroying him and the beast. Then it was time for some R&R the next day. Not only was it time for Nola to be crowned Baron, but also it turned out to be the Lunasa Festival, and the party decided to join in the festivities. They competed in various contests of skill and athletics and took home many medals. With a warm glow of success filling them, they took their leave of their new Baron and began the journey home, this trip would not be without its own encounter, though. Very near the blasted clearing that marked the end of Orlana, the party camped and was visited in the night. First no one, then Adrie, was visited by none other than Alowal himself. To each he gave the offer of becoming his apprentice and joining him in undeath for the reward of unlimited power. Adrie just threw her tea into his face, at which point he disappeared. For Noan, though, he found that another player had entered the field. Dianect himself appeared beside him, and asked Noan to join him instead. Noan rejected both offers, and told each he would chart his own course. Thank you very much. Returning to Porta Magnum in triumph, the party finds domestic problems waiting for them. Cotter's mother was chafing under the restrictions his wife put on the family finances, and Kraval received a message that druids were attacking the hunters and his mate was driving everyone crazy. Although the party would rather continue on their quest, they would have to return to the heights and deal with the situation there. When they do arrive, they find things worse than they thought. The Dragonborn aren't taking to the Lowlander's Grain and their missionaries or the attacking druids. Kraval must use all of his authority to keep the situation in check. Meanwhile, Nuon finds that he is the Dragonling's favorite storyteller, and Arlen teaches the Dragonborn to make tortillas. On the morrow, the party takes the druid captured in the initial raid and she leads him into the mountains to negotiate with the druids there. She escapes, but is to arrange a parley with her order. The party sits down and begins negotiations with the druids who are alarmed that the dragonborn are taking so much game and so many furs and are pushing the ecosystem out of whack. They cannot be convinced otherwise. The party keeps the negotiations going, though, and they finally come to an agreement where the druids will oversee the hunt to make sure it doesn't hurt the balance of nature. Just when it seems that they have triumphed, the head of the spore druids states that they can't agree, since a Lowall wouldn't like it. It is then that they realize that the spore druids have been compromised. A fight breaks out and the party has to defeat this new menace. The remaining druids of the other circles are devastated that someone of their own would turn against them, but they honor the new agreement with the dragonborn and pledge to spread the word of warning. It also confirms to the party that the fogs coming out of the mountains are in fact a Lowall's work that he is behind all of the troubles besetting the land. One other thing of note happens as the party as they descend to the Dragonborn camp. Everyone notices Cotter glancing about as they go, and he tells everyone he saw some glittery rocks on the way up. They join the search and find them and realize that it is a vein of gold showing at the surface. They contact Sinia to send word to Nola, as for sure the dwarves will want to know about this. Then it is time to return to the quest. The party heads down the hill and catches the next airship to Civitas Cataracta. They know that Porta Magnum Ambassador has cleared their names, but they enter in disguise anyways. And as they are not arrested the next day, they assume he was successful in his embassy. Then it is off down to Loford, where the whole adventure began. They are shocked to see that half of the town has been burned down. The townspeople tell them a horde of zombies overran the village just after they left those months ago. The help they secured for the barony has blunted the damage and they thank the party for their help there. Then it is time for the party to leave, and since they are very near Arlen's family farm, they stop in for the afternoon. If you thought Arlen was cute and homey, you have seen nothing yet. His family is as wholesome and welcoming as you could hope for, and even his favorite cow is thriving. The only dark spot is that his older sister fell ill to something in the fogs and perished not too long ago. The party visits her grave on the way out of town and on the way back to the sea to find passage to the island in Touris, where they believe the next phylactery is. But their passage won't be that easy. As they enter the more tropical regions, near where they encountered the black dragon last time, they encounter him again. This time he's a full adult, which makes no sense, as that should take hundreds of years of growth. But nonetheless, that is what they are upped against. To make matters worse, it seems singularly out for revenge against Adrie, who broke its nose and nearly killed it when it was a wormling. It chases her across the battlefield, damaging everyone and everything in its way, leveling Cotter and nearly no one in the process. It finally corners Adrie in one terrible moment, lands on her with all its might, killing her. Then something amazing happens. Everything freezes and Cotter finds himself facing Dianect. He gives Cotter a choice. He can exchange himself for Adry, as Dianek needs him as a general in his army. Cotter is torn, as he has vowed to sacrifice himself to help others, but at the same time has promised his new bride to return to her and the family. In the end, his vows to his order bind him, and he agrees. Then Dianek disappears. Adry is fully healed, and they hear Dianek's voice saying, You have chosen well, general. The test was just to see if he was willing to fulfill his vows. Adri springs up and buries an arrow between the dragon's eyes, killing it. Taking trophies from the dragon, the party bypasses the old capital and returns to the fishing shack of the boatsman, whose silky wife they freed months ago. In disguise, they ask for passage to the island across the sea. He replies that the only thing they could trade for that would be to get his wife back. They find her, and, after some talking, convince her to rejoin her husband, binding him to wedding vows to Nuada. he cannot break. They hold a huge wedding, and then take off with the fishermen. Meanwhile, the tabaxi are hot on the scent of the spellbook and believe it to be an Ubrium Concordia. They charter a sand ship, but when it comes to the sandstorm, they find the city to be overrun by hundreds of undead. They find another spire of the city only slightly guarded, and after dispatching those undead, "'descend into the depths of the city. "'After squeezing their way down into the ruined depths, "'they find what they are looking for, "'but it is guarded by the Watcher, "'a being of undeath whose sole purpose is to guard the book. "'With the ability to instantly kill anyone, "'the cats are at a stalemate. "'They do get him to agree to make a copy of the book, "'and he gives them a list of rare ingredients to gather. "'It seems their quest continues.'" Back in the Great Sea, the party is halfway to the island when they are attacked by a party of Swaggan. Despite being dumped in the water and with a well-timed fireball from the sorcerer, they vanquish their foes and the giant shark they have as a companion. They limp over to the island and find, to their surprise, someone has beat them there. Neil, the greatest hunter ever, just ask him, has built a palisade of logs to protect his landing from the island's reptilian residents. He fills their ears with tales of creatures big as houses that roam the island, a true prize for a hunter such as himself. He invites a party to join him in the hunt for these great, great beasts. The greatest of which he calls the king. And that's where year two ended and year three picked up. Despite their dislike for Neil and his fascination with hunting, the party teams up with him to strike inland towards the great monolith of rock in the center as he seems to be the only competent guide to be found. Shortly, they find themselves between an angry Ticeratops mother and her young. The party tries peaceably to extricate themselves, but Neil sees only another trophy to collect. A lot of exasperation ensues, but everyone makes it out without too many injuries. Striking inland, the party encounters more of the island's inhabitants. They are jumped by velociraptors, have to dodge Diplodocus, and duck-billed dinosaurs, and finally they encounter the king himself, the T-Rex. The King of Dinosaurs, however, proves no match for the party, and they kill it without too many injuries. Neil is thrilled and takes the head as a trophy. He returns to the shore while the party, almost at the monolith, soldiers on. Meanwhile, the Tabaxi are frantically researching the unguents they will need to create the ink that the Watcher has demanded in order to make a copy of the spellbook. They scour the Tabaxi library, but come up short on the location of the last ingredients. Three of the feline folk will have to sneak into Porta Magnum to try their luck there. Red, gray, and jade journey over the mare by sand ship and land in the evening at the docks at Port of Magnum. Just the right time for catfolk to be out. They make it most of the way into the city, but run out of time as the gates close for the evening, shutting them out of the first circle. They are successful in bluffing their way past some gates and climbing the walls to get around others and sneak into the library to gather more information on their quest. Back on the island of Entouris, the party makes its way finally to the great neck of black rock that sticks up like a huge needle in the center of the isle. They find that it is not a single formation of stone, but rather it is segmented into huge hexagonal columns, some of which have toppled like giant trees. This doesn't seem to give them any clue as to what to do now that they have reached their goal, however. Craval his owl flying, and looking through its eyes, he spies on the western side a huge set of stairs and an archway into the spire. They trek towards that only to be set upon by flying reptiles. Pteranodons scream out of the sky and bring death from above. The party is hard pressed but succeed in chasing off some and others they cause to crash into the ground leaving great furrows in the earth. Now safe again the party advances forward and they find that the stairs to the archway are built in huge dimensions. As they approach the arch they find it carved with nautical reliefs. Who might they find within, if any, after all of these centuries? Can this be the hall of the sea ruler that the oracle's prophecy spoke of? They advance into the carven halls and find a palace of gigantic proportions, deserted, but speaking in every way of a grander time long ago. Well, it is almost deserted. As they arrive in the throne room, they find a titanic being sitting upon the throne under a perpetual storm cloud. Attempting to engage him, they find that he has but few words for the likes of them and prefers to sit in his gloom and brood. Getting his permission to explore, the party continues on into the underground palace. Exploring further, a lucky find by Cotter reveals a secret set of stairs under the main stairs. They lead down into the depths of the island, the direction they feel the phylactery is in. They find, however, that these are natural lava tubes, and so are not in any way shaped for beings on foot to traverse. The terrain is as much of an obstacle as the residents'. Spelunking with the aid of ropes and the monk's free-falling ability, they make their way deep within the island, only to find the beholder kin around every turn. First a death kiss, then a bunch of gazers, whose confusion ray sets the party against each other. Then, after a rest, when the party comes up against a locked portcullis, two small beholders bob out of the ceiling. Kraval attacks them, and they explode, undoing all the healing they just performed, and showering the party with spores, as they, in fact, they were gas spores. Finally, at the portcullis, the party sees what they have been looking for. In the ring of chests in a cavern that must be the ancient hollow neck of the volcano that formed the island and the spire is what must be the phylactery. But where is the guardian? Teleporting through the gate, Adrian Arlen opens it for the rest of the party. As they enter, a voice floats down from the heights of the volcanic neck above them. A beholder floats down from above, blasting the winch and slamming the portcullis shut behind them. The guardian has appeared. A difficult fight ensues, with the party staving off certain defeat by the narrowest of margins, making three of their saves that would have killed or petrified them by only a couple of points. The party emerges victorious, but not unscathed. At the end, Arlan is struck by a killing ray by the beholder, and his wild magic goes off, turning him invisible. Now he was dying and appears to have been disintegrated to nothing by the foe. Luckily, Arlan's periap stabilizes him, and Adri finds him. Climbing back to the palace, through the caves once again, the depleted but successful party encounters the Sea King once again in his throne room. In a moment of clarity, Kata realizes that he is suffering from a crippling depression from the loss of the adoration of the sea travelers. No one convinces him to walk with the party and to see the outside world, which still has beauty. He regales the company with tales of happier days when he was king of the sea lanes and his halls were full of the chatter of courtiers and the titles and the tithes of the sea travelers and then sends them on their way. That is not the only kindness they show, however. On the way back to the beach, they encounter a small feathered dinosaur with a broken leg. Craval heals it and it follows him back to the party. No one takes a shine to it and it to him and he names it Thrax. Meanwhile, the Tabaxi begin their quest to create the magical ink they will need. They convince the fishermen married to the Silky to take them out on the seas at night to find a giant squid. They do, and Black's well-timed Nat 20 allows him to caress the squid into giving up its ink to him without a fight. Darn. Then it's up to the mountains to get the poison from a wyvern's tail. Even with the legendary skills of Jade Claw in navigating the mountains and tracking the beasts, it turns out to be a daunting challenge. Eventually, with a mountain goat carcass as bait, they get not only one, but three wyverns to appear, which leads to quite a fight. Successful, they return with the second of the ingredients for the ink. Back on the island, the party beds down midway to the shore for the night and finds out that there are lingering effects from the fight with the gas spores. Two of the party have been infected and become feverish and unresponsive in the night. Cotter uses the power of Dynek to heal them, and they wake in the morning tired but hale. Making it to the shore, they find the hunter and his entourage setting sail as the mission is complete, and they have their trophies at hand. The party follows suit shortly after as the fisherman returns to collect them. Back on dry land, the party returns to the area where they faced off against Snoot the Black Dragon and locate its hoard. Coins and magic items fill their packs. Then it's off to Koleskwe to find out why Cotter's family wine shipments are at a standstill. Halfway there, they run into an impediment. The elves of Vallis Calliae won't let them pass through their fair lands, carrying the phylactery. They are forced into a costly detour, and when they make it to the halfling lands, they are shocked to find the state that they are in. Fungus had run rampant on the crops. No wonder the wine has stopped flowing. Cotter is able to negotiate a release of half of his wine from the winemaker, who had been holding it back against the threat of the Assir's crops failing. The party, however, will have to secure sulfur from the dwarves to hopefully cure the remaining crops, on their way back to Porta Magnum to destroy the phylactery. Finally, Kraval tries to commission the creation of some magic items and finds out that it is quite a bit more complicated than he thought. Feeling the flush of success, the party exit Kalesque to take the flight back to Porta Magnum. Halfway to the docks, however, they run into an old friend. A low appears, casts a spell, and once again the party wakes up on the endless plane, This time it's different as someone is striding across the plain and is surprised that they can see him. The stranger, a Githyanki, identifies himself as the mind traveler. Yes, that's a falconer reference. And deduces that they can only see him as they are in an altered state of awareness due to being trapped in an illusion. Although his first inclination is to kill the lot of them, he agrees to help after a fashion. He manages to free the party from Lowall's illusion with the aid of much flogging, but now they will be immune to that spell henceforth. Turning back to the tabaxi, they are in pursuit of the feather from the hellish beast. They have rumour of an Arianes south of the ruined capital city. Fighting their way past the wantai, they arrive to find that she has enslaved an unknown race of elephant people hidden there. The ensuing fight is a little more than they bargained for, but they prevail. In the end, and find that the loxodon that they have freed transfer their knowledge from person to person and have memories stretching back thousands of years. They give the tabaxi the clue they need to find the creature that took the royal crown 1,000 years ago. It is found on the island that once had the lighthouse in the middle of the bay. Meanwhile, the party has made it back to Fairmont's, albeit after a disastrous discovery. While they were extracting themselves from the Endless Plain, Alowal apparently absconded with the phylactery. This brings up the question of why. Did he just discover the party had been hunting them and was recovering the rest? Is this the real one and the others fakes? Or is this one fake and he stole it back to make the party think it's real so they would abandon their quest to find the others? Wheels within wheels... In Feromons, the party has barely had time to set their gear down when Noan is stabbed in the back by a young dwarf with a poison blade, claiming noan killed his father. Initially, assuming he can wipe the floor with this young punk, Noan quickly realizes that this is a much greater threat than he thought, and one who has planned this ambush out for some time. Only Kraval, hearing the conflict and arriving just in time to heal, saves him. The party subdues the rapscallion, only to find him later dead in his cell. The kiss burned into his cheek, making it obvious that he was an agent of the succubus that they had chased out of Faramans on the last visit. The rest of the visit goes well as they are able to negotiate for the release of the sulfur to aid Keleswe and head back to Porta Magnum and the safety of the Fraser household. There they receive gifts as the Fraser house has had its fortunes turn around with the discovery of gold in the mountains. They then spend some of the earnings on upgrades, and no one gets the trainathon two thousand from the gnomes that he helped fund on their last visit to Pharamond's. All of the optimism is overshadowed by a dire warning from the astrologer. The stars say that whatever is happening to the kingdom will come to a climax in the next several months. Then a most amazing thing happens. Arlen decides to bring his apprentice Orlana back from the dead. After acquiring the right components and convincing the high priest to preside over the ritual, Orlana is brought back. Better yet, her wild magic powers are gone. She won't have to worry about detonating again and can go back to living a normal life. On this happy note, the party leaves to find the next phylactery, but rumors come out of the Dragonborn camp about trouble. And trouble there is. The mine has brought a new prosperity to the dragonborn, allowing them to purchase food that they could not raise, so they will not starve in the upcoming winter. But these changes, abandoning their reclusion in the mountains, no longer living off the land, and now having lowlanders in their midst, have pushed the more conservative tribes too far, too fast. The hot-headed ones attack the mine to drive the invaders away. Only a brave band of dragonborn hunters can hold the attack off and save the day. But clearly, Craval will have more to deal with to keep the peace on his return. That return will have to be in the future, as the next phylactery is the last one whose location they have any clue about. It's apparently located in the great drow city of kharst the home of Adri that she escaped from years ago, and the last place that she would ever want to go to. But go they must. Recalling that there was a way forced to the surface by the drow in the sunken city under the clouded oasis, they head that way. Overflying the Mare, they observe Ubrum Concordia, home of the Oracle, crawling with undead, and then almost miss the clouded oasis, as it's not clouded. Landing they confirm that it is the correct oasis, but the persistent clouds that have always sheltered it are gone. Descending now into the depths of the earth, Miya yes, that's a reference to the AD&D Drow modules, and not knowing where they are going, they begin to encounter the occupants of the Underdark. They are set upon by Zorn, looking to eat their precious metals and gems, but to feed them. Then they encounter a giant fungal forest and meet the Myconoids living there. Making peace with them, they learn that the Myconoids have collapsed the tunnel leading directly to Karst in order to stop the drow raids upon their people. There is a way through the crazy little people town, though. Another passage that they can take. And they head that way. In the ruined city of the Darrow, though, all they find is an ambush. Perhaps assuming the party is in league with the drow, they attack. The party finishes them off painfully easily with the help of a unicorn summoned accidentally by Arlen, and a lot of glitter is thrown around. Now wandering completely lost and bereft of direction, the party stops at an underground stream for the night, whatever night is in this perpetual gloom. They fish for dinner amongst the blind cave fish of the stream and eat well. In the night, though, they spot, and are spotted by, a legendary drow ranger and his panther companion. Deciding, as they may have been spotted, to take the stream and not the cave to move down deeper into the depths, they navigate its slippery and frigid waters. In the process, Arlen gets his weekly bath. This leads them on the shores of an underground lake. Not wanting to stay by a source of water that can attract things that may want to eat them, they take the first fissure they can and end up in the cavern of two dire trolls. Despite pulling out all the tricks they can, the Dire Trolls manage to make the party fear their Whirlwind of Claws attack. Then they discuss the possibility of eating the troll flesh, which, trust me, is not a good idea. Journeying on, the party finally finds evidence that they may be approaching Drow territory, as they stumble into the lair of three Dryders. The webbing slows down the party's attack, but with Arlen dropping fireballs and the monks dancing along the webs unhindered, they prevail. Moving forward more cautiously, the party uses seeming to disguise themselves as drow and they try to talk their way through a drow taxation point. Unfortunately, the spiders that they have seen along the way have been spies for Lolth and she has warned the guards about the approaching surface dwellers. The party has to fight their way through and the drow magic user escapes, presumably to raise the alarm. Now almost completely depleted, they have a tough choice. Do they go forward and hope to find a place to hide or retreat to do the same? They decide to go forward. It is a mistake, as they find themselves trapped on a swinging bridge by a force of drow headed by Adri's betrothed. Meanwhile, back on the surface, the tabaxi have contracted with the fishermen to take them to the isle that has held the old lighthouse. The silkies tell them that it's haunted, and they get a terrible feeling when they approach and won't set foot there. But go they must. Halfway there, a ship rears up out of the dark. A ship with rent sails and a skeleton crew. Literally. They have to fight the g go ship to make it to the isle. Once there, they enter the remains of the lighthouse and find a cavern beneath the island occupied by the Morcoth. They defeat the creature and find the treasure hoard from the old kingdom, including the crown that they have been looking for. Now they have all of the needed ingredients. Back in the Underdark, the party are now prisoners of the drow. Adri and the party are taken back to her family compound in the city of Caharst. Along the way, Cotter is struck by the parallels in their lives. Portum Magnum has 13 families in the first circle that control everything. Caharst has 13 hills that are the home of the 13 priestesses that control everything. His family is a well-to-do trading family, as hers is too. He left his family because of the way they treated their underlings. Adri... Well, we shall see all too soon. In the family compound, the party is split. Adria is locked in her old room, although it has been stripped of any evidence she ever lived there. The men, however, are locked in the slave quarters below. At least they are treated civilly, at least for now, as Adria's betrothed Varus wants to curry her favor for the deal he has in mind. He wants her to marry him, so he has access to her family and their trading rights, and to provide him with an heir. In exchange... He will let them all go free, or so he says. You can never be too sure with the drow. Also, he has another mission for them. A magic box has come into the possession of the drow, and whoever has it rules Kaharst. He would like the party to steal it so he can sell it to the highest bidder and secure his fortune. The party realizes that this box is the next phylactery and can't believe their luck. Adri tries to outscheme the drow and agrees to all of this hoping to find a way to spirit themselves and the flactory away and foil Varus' evil plans. The way comes in a visit from Adri's younger sister. She slips into Adri's room to produce a holy symbol of Sylvanas. She confesses Adri's flight from Kahars made her look at her people in a whole new light and question everything about her culture. She then made contact with a group that was an underground resistance to Lulth's evil rule over her people and dedicated to reuniting the elven branches. She did bring bad news as well, though. Their older brother was just sent on a raid against the Mind Flayers, and that raid never returned. She can help Adria escape, but begs her to track down their brother. All the while, Arlen's wild magic seems to be winding out of control, and Kraval gets a word that the Red Dragon Clan is causing trouble and he's required to return within the week to face their challenger. Things are looking grim indeed. While awaiting their chance, the party was witness to several depredations of the drow. A servant was killed by a spider venom for dropping an expensive wine bottle, and another was dragged from the dungeon screaming to be sacrificed to Lolth. Finally, the party's chance arrives. There was to be a dress ball, another similarity to Porta Magnum, at the house of the 13th priestess, the current holder of the phylactery. Adrie finds her family were to be invited, and the party would go along as bodyguards. At the proper time, they would be able to slip away and infiltrate the building looking for the phylactery. All went well until the party did their skills challenge to sneak to the phylactery, which they failed miserably. They were detected and had to run from the guards, eventually finding themselves in the house chapel, the location of their prize. But someone was there already. It was Lolt herself. She explained that possession of the phylactery had made things too predictable for her and she wanted it gone. But in order for her to spirit the party out of the household to safety, she would want something in return. The party members would agree to carry her mark. With the guards breaking down the doors, the party agreed to the deal and appeared in the streets next to Adrie's sister. She led them away at top speed and down an alley to a safe room of the resistance. Here they met Panther, the legendary drow the party had spotted earlier in the descent who apparently guides rebel drow out from Underdark to some safe haven on the surface. The seeming safety of the location was breached almost right away as the Queen's Guards stormed the safe house, undoubtedly tipped off by Loth who had awareness of the people carrying her marks. The party fled and had to fight their way past more Queen's Guard to escape. Now out of Kaharst, Panther led them to the secret entrance to the Illithid Lair and bid them good luck. The party entered and found the environ to be totally alien, They encountered three mind flayers in the first hole and quickly learned why they were so feared as adversaries, as they barely squeaked out of that fight, as they were stunned for most of it. Now, not so sure they wanted to continue, they crept forward. In the next room, they found one of the drow from the raiding party, along with other people, just lying on slabs of rock. The drow revived long enough to tell Adri that her brother had been killed in battle, and then went through the horrible process of Cetamorphosis and turned into a mind flayer and attacked. Most of the party finished off this illithid, while no one finished the other victims before they could change as well. Now knowing their mission was futile, the party tried to escape and quickly found themselves at the Elder Brain Chamber. Curiously, there were no guards in what one would think would be the most guarded spot in the complex. The party found the Brain a formidable opponent, though, even without guards, as they tried to sneak past it and were assailed by it. With the rest of the party down, Craval and Arlen had to use their skills and magic items to spear them out of the chamber and into the next hall, where they came face to face with, of all things, the Mind Traveler. The Gith, mortal enemies of the Illithids, were raiding the complex. They gave the party a small heal and then went in to finish off the brain. The party collected themselves and then entered the next chamber, which held a nautiloid ship. "'and a scene of mass carnage, "'as this is where the main battle had taken place "'and why there were no guards in the brain chamber. "'They had been killed to the last by the gith. "'As the party watched, the Nautiloid disappeared. "'Now sure that Adrie's brother was not among the living, "'the party exited only to come face-to-face "'with the Queen's guard and Varus, "'or what had been Varus. "'He was now a drider, "'and had two bundles strapped to his back. "'He was prodded forward by the guard, and he attacked.' The party finished him off, as was the guards' intent, and opened the bundles to find Adrie's sister and younger brother. Fleeing the scene, the party was stopped by an underground river. With nothing for it, they hopped into the only boat available and rowed it down the rapids to safety. Sort of. Loth intervened and cashed in her marks on Adrian and Arlen, causing them to crash the boat into the rocks and spill the party into the water. Pulling themselves ashore, they found that they were lost, exhausted, and without their pets. The pets washed ashore somewhere downstream, and in the next episodes had to fight their way back to the people with the help of new friends they made along the way. Reunited, the party is contacted by Galchabar, who has the formula for the teleportation circle found in his cellar. The party teleports back to Waterfall City, where Galchabar tells Ireland he must journey to find the sorcerers of the shore to stabilize him. And Adry must accompany him, as there is a drow enclave, which is where Panther was taking the refugees to. The others he admonishes cannot go, as they still carry the mark of Wolf and must head up into the mountains to deal with the Dragonborn problems. Realizing that this is the worst time to split the party, he introduces them to reinforcements. The Tabaxi. Jade takes Arlen and Adry west, and Red and Misty accompany the rest to the east. And that's where things stand. The whole mission sits perched on the knife edge of failure. Can Adri get her family to safety, and more importantly, before Arlen detonates, killing them all? Can Craval solve the problems of the mountains before the situation blows up there? And what is this we hear about Excalbarium Colise threatening war? And that's where things stood at the end of year three. The party was split, and things didn't look good at all with the problems besetting the group from all sides. First, Craval's team of himself, Cotter, Noan, Misty, and Red headed up in the mountains for him to face the challenger from the Red Dragon clan, but halfway there they were ambushed. It was the Spore Druids again. The party wins through a tough fight, and Krival arrives in the summer vale of the Dragonborn to find the eggs that he had sired with the Brass Dragon Loquax had hatched, and he was a brand new daddy. As they settled into the Dragonborn camp, they were haunted by the notion that this may not be just an internal conflict, but part of a larger plan perhaps influenced by the outside world. They investigated further, but can find no evidence, definitive or otherwise. They will just have to face a challenger and be prepared for anything. Kerval does face a challenger and is dismayed to find that he is a youth, just done with his trail of adulthood. Youth or not, he is a formidable foe, and initially he gains the upper hand in the battle. Kerval realizes that he is a berserker and sets in to wear him down with superior stamina. It becomes clear that although he is enthusiastic, the challenger is no match for Kraval's experience and stamina. In the end, Kraval, well within his rights to kill the opponent, spares his life instead. The youth is impressed and returns to Kraval to learn the path of wisdom and the teachings of Nuada. Now the team must return to Port of Magnum so that Cotter can answer the summons of his Baron. Luckily, the latest ore shipment is leaving the mines in Cotter's own ore carts. They tag along. Halfway down the hill they can stop for the night and the party has the chance to interview the group. From the Carters, they learn that the tensions between Exculbarium Colise and Port of Magnum. They also have a chance to learn about their tabaxi companions, and Craval teaches Misty to project her magic like a breath weapon. Finally, Craval pulls out the skulls from his bag and uses Speak with Dead to interrogate them for information. Heading down the hill, the party finds out soon enough what the situation in the Campo Magno is. The high road through the Campo is blocked by a checkpoint from Exculbarium Colise. Apparently, the Baroness's forces have moved into the Campo Magno with the aim to annex it. The party then engages in a running battle as they aim to break through the blockade. Although successful, several of the party are injured in the escape, but they make it to a port magnum patrol which diverts to destroy the blockade. Making it to the port magnum camp, they can finally rest and recuperate. Now safe, they complete the trip to port magnum and have an audience with the Baron. To learn the state of the kingdom, only to find out that they are heading back to the Campo. Cotter, as head of House Fraser, must take charge of the Swan Battalion. Forming his family's forces up, they head back to the field. The forces of Porta Magnum form up in a favorable location with Cotter's Swan Battalion anchoring the left flank against the foothills of the mountains. The Baron calls for a council of war at his command location, and he is confident of success on the morrow. The party, however, can't shake the feeling that something is up. Why does Excolbarium Khalees attack its neighbor that can feel the force much greater than their own? The party does some reconnaissance, but they are left with more questions than answers. Whatever awaits them, they will have to discover at next day's dawn. Feeling that something is not right, Craval sends a message to his sister to have the Dragonborn Nation waiting in the hills in case things go awry. Meanwhile, Adrian and Arlen have taken the airship across the mare with Adri's family and Jade Claw. At the docks of Kaleskwe, they are joined by Gray, Black, and Moon, and they enter Calesque looking for a path up into the mountains, where apparently there is an expatriate enclave of drow that can shelter Adry's family from the prying eyes of loth and the sorcerers of the shore, who can perhaps heal Arlan of his tendency to explode. But the path to the mountains is where the halflings get their coffee from, so it's not information that they give up easily, and the party is stymied. Enter the Bardnissian, who admits that he was disguised as the drow ranger that the party encountered in the Underdark. He has been running an underground railroad leading drow out of the Underdark to safety in the mountains. He indicates that his contact, the Sweet Prince, can get the party past the gates and onto the path to the mountains. They enlist his aid and provide him with funds to bribe the guards. However, when they enter the abandoned sewers below the city, they are discovered by another guard unit. Apparently the city had upped their security. The party tries to run for it, but a series of bad rolls ends with them cornered by the guards. It is then that the sweet prince drops his surprise and gets him past the guards. The party heads up into the hills, and what they find is surprising. They encounter an enclave of both elves and drow working in perfect harmony. Better yet, the drow are integral to the operation, as a sweetener the halflings used is derived from a flower that is pollinated at night by a spider. Perfect work for drow refugees. Adri sees her family situated in their new community, and then is off to the Sorcerers of the Shore to try to cure Arlen. Gaining an audience with the Sorcerers, the party finds that they believe that they can help, but the one Sorcerer that can assist is missing. Having left to investigate the poisoning of the water sources down the hill, he never returned. They take off in pursuit, and Jade confirms from the local plants that the water there is bad. They track the missing Sorcerer down the hill to a cleft by the sea. Squeezing into that, they find a sunken underground grotto, perhaps a collapsed old sea cave, and in the middle of that, an ancient ship, half buried in a sandbar. As they approach the shore, though, humanoids with pale translucent skin rise up out of the water and attack. Defeating them, though, just brings their master to bear, an alboleth, who rises up from the lake. Dragging the party into the water and nearly drowning them multiple times, the party is nonetheless triumphant with a catch. Three of the parties are infected with the same condition as the alboleth servants. Their skin becomes translucent and they can't leave the water. Crossing the cavern to the wrecked ship, they find the missing sorcerer also infected. Worse yet, Moon, their cleric, can cast heal only once a day and doesn't have it prepared. Meanwhile, Arlen's magic continues to spiral out of control as wild magic surges happen at every casting. It seems his explosion is imminent. Three days later, the party leaves the cave and returns to the keep of the sorcerers. The news is both good and bad. The sorcerers are confident that they can cure Arlan. It's just that the exorcism of his powers might kill him. Meanwhile, back in Excalbarium War, Cotter's team is facing the neighboring barony's forces as the two sides clash. Initially, the battle goes as one would expect with the numerically superior forces of Porta Magnum holding their ground. Then the unexpected occurs, Wading through the Excalbarium lines are soldiers with the telltale fungal symptoms of torque infection. These foes feel no pain and nor no no fear. They bludgeon their way through Cotter's lines. It's up to the heroes of the realm to plug the gaps and hold the line. If they fail, the left flank of the Porta Magnum line will be compromised and most likely will force a retreat. The party wades in with a bit of help from Misty's blasting fire from the hillside, they repel the torque zombies, only to hear a guttural groaning and turn to see undead shambling up the hill at them. This is a much harder fight, with the revenants chasing the heroes around the battlefield and felling them one by one. Only realizing that fire and radiant damage keep them from regenerating lets them come out on top. Barely. The taste of victory is short-lived, though, as a general retreat is sounded, and they look up to see the whole right flank of the army in full rout, retreating to the hill of the baron's command staff. The rest of the army did not have the heroes of the realm to hold their lines. The end of the day finds the army of Port of Magnum badly depleted and hemmed in on all sides. Without another army to save them, it looks as if tomorrow might be their last. Rejoining Arlen's party, they're going to try to expel the wild magic using lightning from an encroaching storm as the rescued sorcerer is a storm sorcerer. He calls down lightning all but killing Arlen, but it does release the chaos from him which forms into a specter of the Mad Mage who infected him and a bunch of the chaos orbs that the Tabaxi faced at the Mad Mage's shack. Yes, those things that killed Moon the last time they faced them. The battle is a close one, but they finish off the orbs and manage to keep Arlan alive at the same time. But now they have to face the specter of the Mad Mage in their depleted state. He is a formidable foe and brings several characters to the edge of death at the last, he detonates, blasting the party off the top of the tower onto the ground below. The still-conscious characters will have to run as fast as they can to save the others as they bleed out on the ground. As they lick their wounds, they realize that they have been successful in neutralizing Arlen's magic. Too successful, as it seems that all of his powers are gone. He is now a level 12 farmer. As Dania picks him up, they bid farewell to Adri's family, who will stay with the Enclave, and to the Tabaxi, who will return to their treehouse. Back with Cotter's party, the forces of Porta Magnum, on the edge of defeat, are amazed to learn that Cotter, well, really, Craval, has an army of Dragonborn less than a day away, and return to their lines bolstered by the news that help is on the way. With the dawn, the forces of Excalbarium press the tack, and Cotter's team holds just long enough for the Dragonborn nation to fall upon the right flank of the opponents, Not expecting this turn of events, the forces of Ex-Colbarium are quickly overrun and put to rout. Not, however, before they're able to inflict one last terrible attack. Hearing commotion in the command area, the heroes charge to the defense of the Baron, but the foe he is fronting is a nightmare. The Baroness is now an undead creation with three leering skulls and a legion of undead retainers. Already damaged from previous fights, the party presses forward anyway. Although victorious, the fight goes poorly very poorly with four of the characters and the baron down at the end and only two a single throw of the dice away from death only clever use of the initiative order with each revived character reviving the one following kept them from becoming casualties of war now in the quiet after the battle the combined forces of the dragonborn and port of magnum render aid to the sick and count their dead after honoring and burning their dead the Dragonborn return to the mountain, hailing Creval as a hero of the age for having restored the honor of his people. Returning to Porta Magnum, they find Adrian Arlan only recently arrived. They are all called to court, where honors are awarded. Creval and Noan are made marshals of Porta Magnum. Then, in private council with the other barons, the party is given a huge surprise. With no clear successor to the throne of Excaliburium Colise, the barons would like one of the party to assume leadership as to leave the seat open would invite duels to the death for every noble scion with designs on it. Installing a hero of the realm would bypass the unneeded bloodshed. It can't be Cotter, though. As a further surprise, the Baron indicates that Cotter is to take the barony after him. The party retires to the Fraser estate to process these turns of events and ponder the next steps in the quest, but their peace is to be short-lived. Servants come running into the house screaming that there is a dragon in the courtyard. The party rushes out to defend the estate, only to find the dragon winging into the distance, and a cloaked figure walking nimbly towards them. They recognize the figure of Jade Claw bearing a tome that the Tabaxi believe bears on their quest. They had gotten wind of a buried ancient caravan weathering out of the sands of the Marais. When they arrived, they found it crawling with giant insectoid creatures which they had to defeat. Among the spoils of battle was a tome detailing the wanderings of the servant of a Lowall as he apparently placed his phylacteries about the kingdom. It gives them valuable clues and indicates the next is to be found between Ferrum and Koleskwe, high in the mountains, near an abandoned gnomish city. The party heads that way, stopping to quiz the head gnome at Ferrum Mons. Halfway there, they find an inn under construction called the Halfway House. They also encounter an old friend. A lowall arrives in disguise and tries to send them all to the illusionary Endless Plain again. The party is immune to this illusion after their meeting with a mind traveler, and realizing this, Alowal teleports to safety. Then, for the first time, the party dispels the illusion that is still gripping Jade. They head up into the mountains through the area most ravaged by the fogs from the hills. They give some money to a farming couple so that they can restart their lives in Pharamond's and climb into the snowy wastes. All the while, the monks work with Arlan to center himself, or by punching him, to help him regain his magic and he does get a hold of the basic spells they find the ancient gnome home and adrian noan scout ahead returning they realize that halfway back they are surrounded by camouflage yeti which they have to fight through dangerously separated the rest of the party will have to rush to their aid before they are frozen to death fighting through they make it to the gnome home once inside they come to the horrible realization that everything in here is a terrible pun Now the players are pondering the missteps of their lives that have led them to this dubious end. Not far in their explorations, they find that not all of the ancient defenses are defunct. Iron Golems, Guardatron 999s, spring to life to attack and have to be defeated. Delving deeper, they come across more and more interesting and ancient artifacts of the previous occupants, including a repulsive sphere that they can't get within 10 feet of and has to be crawled past. Finally, they turn a corner and find a creature... That is a gnome from the waist up, but a spider from the waist down. A gnome drider? Meanwhile, in the outside world, Lo'al has turned up the heat by sending his undead minions to attack the known world. The Tabaxi have to fend off an attack by an undead force that will overwhelm their treehouse. The party is delayed by a group sent by the undead knight that commands the force. Misty, knowing now how to fight these from her time in the war, directs the cats in their attack, and they wrap them up tidily. Then they race to catch up with the force before they can lay siege to the tree. Getting there, in the nick of time, they fall upon the commander. He's no slouch, though, and they are hard-pressed, but win in the end, and the force loses its cohesion and is defeated. Back in the gnome home, the party realizes that this isn't some kind of strange drider, and Adria can breathe again. Instead, it's a gnome, part of an expedition that returned to the ruin decades ago that unfortunately found a passage to the lair of a red dragon and were incinerated by its resident. She alone survived and crawled back here with her failing limbs, was able to construct a conveyance, and then all the support equipment she needed to forge a comfortable life here in the gnome home. She had been experimenting there ever since. Unfortunately, these experiments also did 1d10 of pun damage. Still, she gifts them with some stud muffins, wisecrackers, heel biscuits, jalapenos, and some bacon of hope to take with them. Then the party engages in some massive overplanning as they prepare to face the red dragon that must be guarding the next phylactery. Before that, another dragon must be faced. A has gifted undead minions to the white dragon by the dragonborn tribes. With those at its command, it tries to waylay the dragonborn hunters. Defeating the undead handily, they realize that they have an even bigger problem. They must either offer the dragon more than a Lowall, or they will have to endure siege after siege of these undead minions. They journey to negotiate with the dragon, and despite the silver-tongued bard failing his most crucial checks, they come away with an agreement, an amount of tribute the dragon will require to reject a Lowall's gifts. It's crunch time now in the no-home. The party makes its way through the volcanic clefts of the mountains to the lair of the dragon. They attempt to sneak into its lair and purloin the phylactery, if they can find it, but it's not so easy to sneak by a fully grown dragon, and it spots them right away. No one goes immediately to plan B, or was it plan A all along, and brazenly goads the dragon into attacking him. This kicks off an epic battle where just about all of the party gets flamed. In the end, no one is dropped to zero hit points but is saved by the death ward that Kraval cast on him. Playing dead, he is ignored by the dragon who turns on the others, but Kraval and Cotter front the monster while Arlen and Adri search for the phylactery, and Jade plinks away from the entrance with arrows. In a surprising turn of events, Cotter slays the beast. The party is astounded and confused, as this seems too easy, and the pregnant pause afterwards, Adri finds the phylactery. It was too easy, as they deduced. The mother of the dragon that they slew appears from the depths of the next cavern, and it's now a race to escape her wrath. The shock of the events has a good outcome, though, as Arlan's magic returns. Most of the party uses their skills and special abilities to hightail it down the lava tube to freedom. Not Kraval, though. He stands his ground and offers to revive the dragon's child in exchange for their lives. She agrees not to kill Kraval, but this is too great an insult to forgive. And in exchange for her child's life, she gives him amnesty. But the next time they meet, they all meet as enemies. With now an ancient red dragon in hot, and I mean hot, pursuit. The party expends all of their resources to try and put as much distance between them and the dragon. Unfortunately for Jade, the dragon breathes and with the blast funnel down the tube, it catches her and she falls. No one doubles back and carries her with him. All too soon, the party breaks free of the tunnel and tries to hide from the enraged dragon. With a sense of panic, the monks realize that Arlen did not hide well enough and he will be spotted as soon as the mother leaves her lair. Holding their breath and preparing for the worst... A dragon's shadow appears, but going the other direction. It's Loquax diving in to protect her mate. Creval gets to see her engaged in fiery combat for just a moment before Arlen completes the teleportation circle and sends them back to Porta Magnum. They have only the shortest time to spend in peace, though, as they must pursue the next phylactery. Adrie does shock everyone by revealing her true self to the whole of the Fraser household, which is a shock to all. Then it's off to Pheromon's again to see if they can find any information on the flying castle they must investigate next, or the Vale of the Pegasus that they have on their ancient map. Gleaning what they can, they take off for the mountains, contacting a friendly druid along the way to guide him. It's a good thing too. It's a good thing too. The mountains of October are fickle, and they get trapped in a blinding snowstorm. Their new druid friend leads them to a secret hidey hole where they wait out the passing storm. Then it's off to the Vale, but much to their surprise, they find it the home of not gleaming white-winged horses, but rather large hogs. When one extends its gossamer fairy wings, they realize that this is actually the vale of the pigasus. They press forward it regardless, and tame the hogs and ride them up into the sky, where they do spot a castle in the clouds. But how to gain entrance? Do they fight their way in? Talk their way in? Sneak their way in? Despite having no one trained in deception... They go with the talking route. A couple of terrible roles seem to doom the plan, but the giants invite them inside. Anyway. So what's going to happen? We will have to wait for the next episode to find out. Until then, let us know what you think. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Email us at relicofthepastpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Follow us at Relic of the Past on Twitter and Relic of the Past Podcast on Facebook. Articles and artwork are available and thank you for playing in the world that lives inside my head.